الجزيرة بودكاست The countdown is officially underway to the biggest football tournament in the world. Back in 2010, when it was announced that Qatar would host the 2022 World Cup, the country's residents were thrilled. We are proud to become the first Arab and Middle Eastern country to host the World Cup. I was thrilled too. I was there in 2010, working at Al Jazeera at our headquarters in Doha. And ever since, I've been excited to cover the first World Cup in the Middle East, which is why this was one of the last episodes I worked on before my parental leave. Over the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you some of the tournament's biggest stories. But first, we have a look at the preparations for this World Cup, including all of their controversy and a preview of what we might expect. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Karen. He's the editorial lead at AJ+. He also hosted a podcast for Al Jazeera about the 2018 World Cup called The Game of Our Lives. And this time around, he'll be on our show often as a kind of resident scholar on football, soccer, whatever you'd like to call it. It's a great honor to be your World Cup analyst. I've been writing about the World Cup and obsessively following football for 40 years now. So I've never played the game, I've never coached the game, but I have been in the pews most of my adult, even most of my childhood life. So definitely as a journalist, I've always been very aware of the underlying meanings of what happens on a football field. And the way I think about the game is most inspired by something that the great Trinidadian political writer C.L.R. James once wrote about cricket. He was trying to capture the anti-colonial meaning of cricket and he had used this aphorism, what do they of cricket know who only cricket know? I.e., you don't really understand what's happening in a football stadium unless you know about everything that's happening outside of that football stadium. Which is a perfect segue because that's exactly what we want this World Cup preview to be about. So let's start at the beginning. What was your reaction when you found out that the World Cup would be held in Qatar? I was excited. I thought, you know, having the World Cup hosted in an Arab country for the first time is a very important move. That breaking of the duopoly that had for most of the history of the tournament been between Europe and Latin America as where the hosting country would be. The first Asian World Cup had happened in 2002 in Korea and Japan. And the first African World Cup had happened in 2010 in my home country, South Africa. And so to stage a World Cup in the Arab world was a recognition of the global reach of the game, the importance of Arab players and Arab fans. So I think it's, it was part of a broadening of the, the epicenters of the game. So in addition to being the first in the Middle East, it's also the first Winter World Cup. What is the significance of that? Obviously, Qatar in summer is too hot to stage a World Cup. So this World Cup is being held in winter. What that means is that the domestic 
professional league programs of all of the countries in the Northern Hemisphere, but obviously Europe particularly, which is the epicenter of the global game, now have a season that's disrupted by a mid-year, you know, month-long break. But what it really represents is a deeper power struggle over the global game between two rival centers, the one being FIFA and the confederations that represent the national teams, and the other being the European clubs, which are the most powerful entity in, in the game. So we also have to be frank. The World Cup is no longer the pinnacle of the global game. That's because that title now belongs to club football, especially with tournaments like the Champions League, which pits the best European club teams against each other. You'll probably see more of the world's best players on the field in that game than you would in a, in a World Cup final. And why is that? That's because since the 1990s, globalization has basically opened up the European club leagues to be the equivalent of you know what the NBA is in basketball. If you look at, say, the team that Brazil takes to the World Cup, almost guaranteed of the 27 players that they have in their squad, no more than two or three will actually play their weekly football in Brazil. All of them will be based in, in the top European clubs. And that's the case for most Latin American and African teams. Their players are on the payroll of European clubs. That's where the money is in the game, and it attracts the most highly skilled players. And also, by the way, it's watched. Like, we know the World Cup final itself is watched by a billion people live, which is incredible. Yeah. What's an interesting parallel, though, is the number of people in Africa alone that tune in live every weekend to an English Premier League game is 400 million. Mm. It's all about money. So what we have now is a power struggle over the world's most popular sport, FIFA, the sport's international governing body, is pushing for more viewers. FIFA is intensifying its push for a World Cup every other year. Cynics will say the reason FIFA want to do this is because they want to increase their revenues. And a World Cup every two years would mean less time for the club teams, who are also trying to solidify their hold on the game. They'll all dress it up as, oh, this will be good for the game. It's all about two rival business centers competing for this prize. The political analogy, comparing the World Cup to the Champions League, think about the United Nations General Assembly. Hypothetically, that is the most representative body in terms of world politics. It would be, you would think, the pinnacle of global governance. Yeah. And yet we all know that the UNGA is almost entirely a symbolic venue and the power is in the hands of the UN Security Council, <laughs> which includes, you know, the five unelected permanent members who all have veto power, etc. In some ways, that's an analogy with where global football is right now, that the European clubs are the equivalent of the Security Council, perhaps without the, quite the veto power. There's a bit more of a balance, but it's that sort of distinction. Tony, this is why we love having you on, because you can unite the political science nerds among our <laughs> listeners with the football nerds among our listeners and, and, and merge them together. Thank you for that insight. We'll hear more from Tony in a bit. But first, a dispatch from Doha, where Al Jazeera's Sohail Malik has been watching tournament preparations take place for more than a decade. I'm a sports reporter here working for Al Jazeera English in Qatar, been here for just under 20 years and super hyped about this competition that's going to be happening in Qatar. 
We're just gearing up for it every single day. The countdown is on. And it's a countdown nearly 12 years in the making. So Hale was at the Al Jazeera offices back in 2010 when FIFA revealed Qatar would be hosting. What I remember was that moment when Seth Blatter, the former president of FIFA, the 222 FIFA World Cup. You know, he made a big announcement and he went, Qatar! (laughs) Wow. For a split second, it was shock. For another split second, it was euphoria. And then the next split second, a massive eruption of people shouting in the newsroom. I haven't heard a shout, a scream, a a bit of cheering like that in this newsroom. I've been at Al Jazeera for, you know, 17 years around. Nothing, nothing has made an eruption like that before. And it's a building that's not full of Qataris. It's a very uh, multinational, cosmopolitan place, the Al Jazeera newsroom. So... We're talking mainly expats here. And that moment was a moment of celebration by a group of people that kind of felt that Qatar was now their home and they were taking part in it. And that's what I remember, this moment of overjoy mm-hmm. that uh, I've not come across since being in Al Jazeera for all those years more. After you left the newsroom, you could see the euphoria on the streets. That's where I was that day. I remember it very vividly. I went to Qatar, the... A cultural center in Doha for the announcement. And it was pandemonium. I have never seen such excitement. It was it was as though Qatar had won the actual World Cup and not just the bid to host it. It was funny you mentioned that about it was like Qatar actually won it. In colloquial terms, when you talk to people at the time, uh, people over here used to refer to it when Qatar won the World Cup. It actually, <laughs> it, it actually became, you know... Uh, the way how people used to express themselves at the time. Remember, this has never happened before, you know, a Middle Eastern country having the World Cup. And that excitement was palpable that night. Here's what one Qatari resident said. What happened today is only the beginning. We should double our efforts from now on. Hopefully now, we will all double our efforts as Arabs, Muslims, and Qataris to organize a tournament that will be remembered for generations to come. Already, five, ten minutes after the announcement, people were dashing to congregate at these places to celebrate. And I just remember, as soon as I left the Al Jazeera compound, traffic had already started backing up. Well, this is Doha's main Cornish street. It's actually a three-lane highway. As you can see, nobody's going anywhere. So that was 12 years ago. You've been in Doha ever since. What kind of changes have you noticed in Qatar since then? How has the landscape changed? How has security changed? How has life changed? Every single day when I drive my car to work or I drive somewhere, it kind of feels I'm seeing something new. Mm -hmm. You have those kind of places where it's just for you and your friends. It's like it's a hidden gem, right? They're yours. That's how Qatar was as a country before. Since then, Qatar has just exploded, especially since getting this World Cup. The landscape is completely different. Just look at the skyline of Qatar, where you see all the big buildings in the West Bay area. I think since the last 10, 12 years, the number of buildings, I don't know the exact figures, but it kind of looks like it's doubled. As Sohail tells it, Doha basically became a construction site once the hosting announcement was made. And it wasn't just fancy sky rises popping up. 
we used to have um, not the best roads, you could say. Some of them were narrow. We had roundabouts, which used to maybe intimidate a lot of people that came to drive in Qatar. You probably remember them well. Yes, you take your life into your hands at every roundabout. <laughs> yeah, the road system here has completely been redeveloped. You've got a metro system now as well. So, you know, the whole landscape and character of Qatar has changed. It's, it's a completely different place. And has this been in preparation for the World Cup or is this separate? It's a mix between both because obviously Qatar had a much more grand visions beyond just hosting a World Cup. So whether the World Cup happened or not, there was always going to be mass development in Qatar because it's, it's a very ambitious country. Most of the things have come up are going to benefit the World Cup, are going to make being at the World Cup better for the people coming. But I just want to make another point here. They're not just building over here things that would be useless afterwards. When people come here, they're going to be temporary accommodations that will be pretty much gone when the World Cup is over. If you look at the plan, there's um, a traditional Arabian-style fan village where people can choose to stay if they want. It's got those old-fashioned Bedouin-style tents, which inside, actually, they're pretty kitted out and pretty luxurious. <laughs> and also, we've got cruise ships coming to Qatar that are going to be docked on the shore where fans can stay as well. So there has been a fair bit of foresight not to be left with the city of white elephants after the tournament. So finally, Sohail, as a resident of Doha, what do you hope that visitors might see or might take away from this experience that they might not have expected? I really want people to experience how the football culture is over here. And a lot of it revolves around uh, shisha, around hookah cafes. When there's a big night uh, and in the Champions League or if Qatar are playing, you have to book a place literally in a shisha cafe because it's going to be wild. At the last World Cup, maybe it's because of England's uh, history. I'm from England. It's the most unpopular team whenever there's a World Cup. So I remember last time when England went to the semi-finals, I was at these cafes most of the time and they played Colombia. I was literally on my own getting heckled the whole time by everyone. There were no Colombians in that cafe, but everyone became Colombian just right. in the hope that England go out. So there's always that banter, there's always that commotion. So I really hope people buy in and try to experience the local football culture. With all the construction, Sohail mentioned, there's also been controversy. Qatar's World Cup in 2022 has thrown the spotlight on the welfare of those who are building the venues for football's showpiece. Every knock alters Doha's cityscape. Beam by beam, the Qatari capital is growing on the backs of these men. Migrant workers who've left families and homes eager for opportunity. Criticism persists about the treatment of the army of migrant workers who have made this World Cup a reality. Concerns about the conditions for the workers building the stadiums for the World Cup have cast a dark shadow on Qatar's hosting. Here's Tony Karen again to break that down. We have seen for a number of years now that very credible international human rights and labor rights organizations have made extensive studies of conditions in Qatar and have produced reports, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and the International Labor Organization would be three that come to mind, that have detailed quite shocking experiences and abuses of the migrant labor workforce that has been building stadiums in Qatar. It's something Al Jazeera has documented as well. Here's what Deepak Biswas, 
an air conditioning fitter who came to Qatar from India, told the network back in 2012 as the construction boom took off. My family don't know I live like this. They would worry about us. That's why we don't tell them. I paid the agent in India about $1,400 to come here. I've just finished paying the loan off, but I have nothing left. So, World Cup stadiums are always built by migrant labor. Even within Brazil or within South Africa, it wasn't as if this was like a neighborhood workforce that turned its attention to this project, obviously. And the conditions of migrant labor in many countries, the power of those workers is is much more limited by virtue of being migrants. In the Gulf, that's been a, a much more intense problem. There isn't much of an indigenous working class in the Gulf. And the conditions in the region for migrant workers have been ones that would not be acceptable in many parts of the world. Now, the country authorities have acknowledged the problem. They have investigated over the years, responded to the investigations, passed new laws, promised, you know, to improve things. And I think by all accounts, there have been significant improvements relative to what had gone before and relative perhaps to the norms of the Gulf. Over the years, there have been protests, including by football players themselves. Here's what Nasser al-Khatir the 2022 World Cup CEO told Al Jazeera last year about those protests. People really need to see the amount of work that Qatar has put, the progress it has made. They need to put it into context of the region and where Qatar stands in the region. I don't think this issue will disappear before the World Cup. I think, if anything, more likely to see it escalate. And I think you might see some concrete demands being the focus of that kind of protest action, particularly on the question of compensation to families whose loved ones died in the building of of stadiums in Qatar. You mentioned protest actions. At the 2018 World Cup in Russia, we saw protesters with the Russian feminist punk group Pussy Riot run the field. There was some unexpected drama on the soccer pitch at the World Cup final in Moscow, and it had nothing to do with the game itself. Four people charged the pitch all at the same time, about 52 minutes into the game. One activist was able to give French star Kylian Mbappe a double high five. Another was less lucky, tackled by Croatian player Dejan Lovren. They were protesting political rights in Russia. Are you expecting any protests or moments like that, which were definitely attention-grabbing this time around? I would be shocked if there weren't uh, moments of protest. I mean, if you if you think about it, the World Cup gives you a captive audience of more than a billion people, live in real time, given what we've seen already in terms of issues being raised about worker rights in Qatar, issues being raised about LGBTQ rights in Qatar, I think it's certainly a safe bet that there will be some forms of action. You've even seen discussions, for example, the Qatari minister responsible for policing having to discuss, well, what would happen if somebody raised a rainbow flag in a stadium? And then him saying, well, that would be confiscated. We don't allow flags to be raised in in stadiums. But you can see why any group that is needing to make a point will find it very tempting to do because it's a very difficult position for the host nation because whatever you do in response to some sort of protest creates its own momentum and creates its own set of issues. Yeah. So finally, Tony, we have talked about the importance of the World Cup being hosted in Qatar. 
But how much do you think location actually matters in the end? You're reminding me of something that I began to think about after 2010. And if you take the arc from the 1950 World Cup in, in Brazil, in the Maracanã Stadium, it's Brazil-Uruguay. Uruguay wins. It's, it's like a historic disaster in Brazilian culture. And basically what's interesting about that game is it's an experience shared in real time by 100,000 people, all of whom are inside the stadium. They're physically present. Most of the world hears about what happened in that game the following day. But fast forward to 2014. The final was between Germany and Argentina. It took place in that very same stadium in Brazil. And this time, more than a billion people tuned in from around the world. What satellite technology has done has made this an intimate, shared, real-time experience. And then if you look at the statistics on social media, like it's the biggest single day of sharing, like billions and billions of interactions. So this global electronic crowd sharing a real-time moment is also behaving like a crowd. They're literally talking to one another on, on their devices. And I remember thinking to myself, after 2014, it's like, you know, if you imagine, you know, a, an era where there's space tourism and you can create gravity, you could hold the World Cup in a spaceship and the world would still share it in the same way because mo- for most of us, it's a very real and vivid experience. We can recall minute by minute what's happening, but you don't have to be there. That's, that's the change. And that's The Take. We're excited to share the world's biggest sporting event with you, wherever you may be. You can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at AJE Podcasts with what stories you're looking at. And even if you're not the biggest football fan, we'll have something for everyone in our coverage over the coming weeks. So stay tuned. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Chloe Kaylee, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>